this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And it's another Sunday night. I have one quick update. Ooh. U.S. Rep. Cory Bush, who's a new U.S. Rep, has proposed legislation that would make coercive control part of domestic abuse legislation and we can talk more about it next episode but i just wanted to get that out there she's the one who her first day in congress she was wearing a face mask that said brianna taylor and some of her colleagues thought she was her name was brianna taylor so you kind of wonder what they've been paying attention to for the past year i know i know so anyway well yes i have no updates if i am supposed to i apologize to everybody i i don't think anyone's keeping score so you don't know my no, what I'm doing. I don't know but, what you're doing, and I'm very excited. Well, my guess is that very early into it, you'll know. Okay, okay? I'll tell you if I figure it out. Okay, sometimes I don't. You will. Yeah, I promise you, you will. Ooh. Um, oh, why is it John Bonet Ramsey? No. Okay. In fact, it's one I don't think a lot of other people have done. Ooh. Although in my research, I did come across either a podcast or a blog. I couldn't tell about it, which I didn't read because... Of course it is. Okay, well, first of all, ladies, this is a cautionary tale. I know times have changed since this happened, but some things still stay the same. So I just want you to keep that in mind. I got all my information from the Bangor Daily News mm-hmm. in Maine... In the Glen Falls, Montana Tribune. Hmm. The original stories, thanks to newspapers.com. In fact, there's stuff I ended up not putting in. And I probably could have looked at some other papers and maybe gotten some other stuff. But there was enough and I didn't have time to look for other tidbits. I think you'll be satisfied. I also got a little bit from justia.com, our favorite. Oh, yeah. I like that one. Yeah. Because those court affidavits often have details that you don't read in the paper and stuff, you know. And because they're in a court document, they're the truth. I mean, they're the real fact. And you know how sometimes newspaper stuff is, you'll see what the story can get messed around. But anyway, I will start. Okay. Kathy Frost was beginning to feel like she'd never find a man to love her and she'd spend her life alone. It's not that bad, Kathy. Sorry. When she spotted the personal ad in the Bangor Daily News in July 1987. She was 26, so now looking back, it may seem a little early in life to be desperate, but she's the exact same age she was born the same year I was. And I can tell you, younger women, that my generation, though raised during the early years of women's liberation, still got a very strong message that finding a man was the most important thing you could do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I never felt that way, but plenty of (laughs) others did. And I think, well, I didn't. Why do you snort like that? Because I agree with you. Okay. but And I think in some ways, young women still get that message. They it's do. more subtle now than it used to be. But Kathy was a nurse's aide. She was working in a nursing home in Dexter, Maine. And so she was also from small town Maine, which could seem very small indeed back in the days of, you know, half a dozen TV stations and no internet. No internet, yeah. Yeah, so that probably didn't help. The ad was in two area newspapers, actually two Bangor newspapers, the Bangor Daily News and the Bangor Review. It said, construction worker, 37, 5 foot 7, 135 pounds, seeks compatible childless lady, 25 mm. to 30, 
for lasting relationship. He's a little guy. A little guy. And of course, as all guys, he's looking for somebody younger than him. And no kids. And no kids. At least he's honest about that. Yeah. Dennis Larson, the man who took out the ad, was newly divorced. He'd moved from Montana to Maine in June, getting a job as an electrician at the Great Northern Paper Mill in East Millinocket, about 50 miles north of where Kathy lived. His marriage had been rocky, largely, his ex-wife said later, because he couldn't hold down a job, even though electricians, and this is Maureen talking, electricians tended then as now to be able to write their own tickets. It's not clear why he chose Maine. He didn't seem to have any ties here. But at the time, the Great Northern Paper Mills in Millinocket and East Millinocket, where he landed, were at their peak, and he may have heard through his union or the grapevine that there was good money to be made, which there was. And the cost of living's pretty low. Yep. Yep. It was, those were the heydays back then. <laughs> Larson was a Vietnam vet and a 1968 graduate of C.M. Russell High School in Great Falls, Montana. He enjoyed hiking and the outdoors, and I even found a photo of him in the Great Falls Tribune from 1973 with a giant carp that he'd caught. Ooh. When he moved to Maine, he was still hoping to get his ex-wife, Janine, back. <sighs> even though he was 2,650 miles away. Quote, I wanted her to believe that I could be better, he said later. Mm-hmm. But soon after he got to Maine, she made it clear she didn't want anything to do with him. Mm. That 4th of July, despondent over her lack of interest, he said later, he drove around his new state, ending up in Bar Harbor about a two-hour drive from East Millinocket, where he watched the fireworks. He also drove around the Loop Road at Acadia National Park, mm. getting his first glimpse of Otter Cliffs. All right, we're getting somewhere. Rocky promontories that rise 110 feet above the Atlantic. Do you know? What's yeah, the, okay. I think I am. Okay. He also placed the ads in the two Bangor newspapers. Hmm. Kathy was one of three women who responded. And back then, you did it by writing to a P.O. box. You wrote Just letters. Just like in the Pina Colada song. Yes, Sorry. that's right. <laughs> and his ad, did, his ad almost sound like the Pina Colada. Yeah. Hey, he was nobody's poet, but it right. wasn't half bad. Yeah. <laughs> Construction Sorry, worker, 5-7. He initially rejected Kathy. Hmm. He first dated Randy Powers of Medway, which is a town next to East Millinocket, who'd answered his Bangor Daily News ad in July. They went for a drive on their first date, and within 30 minutes he brought up marriage, saying he wanted to do it quickly. And, Mm. like a cat with a pork chop, he wouldn't let go of the topic. She repeatedly told him she wasn't interested in getting married right away, and finally he slammed his hand on the steering wheel and said, that's it, and brought her home. (laughs) She never heard from him again. I wouldn't would hope if she had she wouldn't have responded. But Sheila Carter of Etna, a town near Bangor, was another of the three people who answered his ad. She lasted two dates with Larson. He brought up marriage early and often on the first date, and like Randy yeah. Powers, she too said she wasn't interested in rushing things along like that. After the second date, he sent her a letter saying he wouldn't be coming back to Etna anymore. Oh God. Quote. We both just figured we didn't get along good, she said later. Mm. We weren't that much alike. So, getting no other responses, even though he had initially written to Kathy to tell her he wasn't interested, he wrote her a second letter and told her he was interested after all. He canceled the ads on August 22nd after hearing back from her that she meet him, and on August 23rd they had their first date 
and it was off to the races. Poor Kathy. Around that same time in August, Larson met with Tim Callahan, an Allstate insurance agent working mm-hmm. out of the Allstate mm-hmm. office in the Sears at the Bangor Mall. Just saying that makes me feel all nostalgic mm, for the 70s and 80s. Larson told Callahan he was getting married and he wanted to know how much insurance he could buy for himself and a spouse for about 200 a month. Wow. He also told Callahan he wasn't impressed with his future bride Kathy's weight. She weighed between 280 and 300 pounds. But he said she'd also shown him a picture of herself when she weighed about 150. And she told him if she could get to that weight once, she could do it again. Hmm. He told Kathy she had a lot of things going for herself. She was cheerful, and he was impressed with the way she could thaw pipes. Though since it was August, I assume <laughs> that was just her telling him about it. Hmm. Um, <laughs> or that's a euphemism for something. Well, you'll see it's know. probably you'll see it's probably not. He was also okay. impressed with how she could plant a garden herself and mow the lawn at the little house she bought in Dexter with Poor an inheritance. Kathy. With an inheritance from her grandmother, yet you'll feel worse for her shortly. He told her it would be really easy to fall in love with her. Oh, Jesus. Apparently that all happened on their first or second date, because a week after they met, he told her he loved her. Kathy fretted constantly about her weight, even before meeting Larson. Once they were together, she also worried they didn't have that much in common. Her family and friends, God love them, saw her as a, quote, extremely lonely, desperate individual who was unable to get a man, unquote. Oh, jeez. She who told wrote s- that? What's that a quote from the newspaper? That, that came from a police report. Oh, jeez. From police interviews later. I don't want to give too much away. Okay, by okay sorry. She told sev- but it was repeated constantly in the newspaper. She told several friends she didn't want to spend another winter alone. Mm. She wants somebody else to thaw those pipes, I guess. Mm. They were engaged September 6th, two weeks after they met. Kathy told her friends she didn't love him, but thought she could learn to. She was also extremely concerned about his lack of interest in having a sexual relationship Mm. before they were married. She wanted to live together first, but Larson was gung-ho to get hitched. They were going to be married September 13th, but couldn't get a marriage certificate that fast. So they got married on Sunday, September 20th, 1987, three weeks after they met. It was Kathy's first marriage, Dennis's third, at least. Mm -mm. Kathy's mother, Audrey Pomeroy, first met Larson on September 13th, six days before the wedding. She wanted her daughter to take more time to get to know Larson better, but Kathy said, if I don't marry him, he'll find somebody else, and then I'll be alone. Oh, Jesus. Larson didn't invite any guests to the wedding or reception. And while Kathy was very happy at the wedding, her mother said, she couldn't help but notice, the mother couldn't help but notice that Dennis seemed glum and uninterested. I looked for a wedding announcement in the Bangor Daily News, but couldn't find one. And it's possible things happened so fast she didn't get a chance to do it. And I remember from the old days at the newspaper that lots of times those things would run weeks or months after they happened. Yeah, Most people go on a honeymoon after they get hitched. Or at least spend a romantic weekend together. Dennis had a less romantic, practical nature. The day after their wedding, Mr. and Mrs. Larson went to visit Tim Callahan at the Allstate Insurance Office in the Sears at the Bangor Mall to take out life insurance. Mm. Three hundred fifty for Dennis and two hundred thousand for Kathy. Dennis's was double indemnity that if he got injured on the job and couldn't work, it would pay twice. Kathy's was double indemnity in case of an accident. 
Meaning that if she died in an accident, the beneficiary, who was Dennis, would get twice that amount, or $400,000. The Larsons prepaid the policies for two months. Kathy told a co-worker that the size of the insurance policy, quote, shows how much Dennis loves me. Yeah. But things fell apart fast. Kathy complained to family and co-workers about Larson's temper and, quote, sex problems, unquote. Mm. The newlyweds argued nightly. When friends urged her to get an annulment, she said, I made my bed, now I'll lie in it. And again, ladies, if you're having second thoughts, never feel that you've invested something in a relationship, so that's why you have to stay in it. Even if, like, it's before the wedding and you say, we've paid for the wedding, my parents, blah, 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 and all that. If you're having second thoughts, just get out of it. I'm just saying. Yeah. In any case... Larson called insurance agent Tim Callahan on October 7th and said he wanted to reduce the face amount of the policies, but with the rider still intact. They scheduled a meeting to discuss it for Monday, October 12th. Larson moved right into the house in Dexter that Kathy had bought before she knew him, and it's not clear if he kept his job in East Millinocket, which would have been a 90-minute or so commute north from Dexter. Even though it's less than 60 miles, it's two-lane roads and... Um, mm. In a news story later in October, he was described as a, quote, union construction worker recently employed in East Millinocket. So I'm guessing he didn't keep his job. Hmm. And that might be why he wanted to reduce the insurance payments. But they had prepaid for two months, so it wouldn't have been till after October. Two weeks into the marriage, Kathy was no longer the happy girl she'd been. Hmm. She always used to cheer up her mother, but now she was sad and her mother was getting worried. On Friday, October 9th, A little more than two weeks after, Kathy told her mother that the pair were going to Acadia National Park on Mount Desert Island the next day. The park is a little less than two hours from where Kathy and Dennis lived in Dexter. Kathy told her mother she didn't want to go, but was going to please her husband. Acadia is Maine's only national park, and it gets about three million visitors a year. It's got old carriage trails from when nearby Bar Harbor was a summer haven for the very wealthy of New York and other states, including the Rockefellers and other rich people. The real Rockefellers. The real ones, right. A lot of that ended in 1947 when wildfires that consumed much of the state leveled many of the stately mansions there. But the carriage roads remained, and the park also has spectacular main coastal vistas and Cadillac Mountain. At 1,529 feet high, it wouldn't seem to many like a very challenging mountain, but its claim to fame is that it's the first place the sun hits in the U.S. every morning. Kathy wasn't a fan of the outdoors or outdoor activities, and she was also deathly afraid of heights. I'm with you, girl. That's not to say Acadia wouldn't have had things for her to do. You can drive the loop road and see the scenery, drive up Cadillac, sit on Sam Beach, or any number of rocky promontories and watch the waves, check out Thunder Hole, or take a nice easy walk through the woods on a carriage road. Still, like I said, she told her mother she didn't want to go, and she told a co-worker Bar Harbor bored her. And by the way, she wouldn't be the first Mainer to feel that way. Beautiful as it is, the rest of the state gets a little tired of the whole lighthouse and lobster summer people thing. Also, none of the stories ever say this, but I would think that that would be Indigenous Peoples Day weekend, obviously back then known as Columbus Day weekend, and traffic would have been horrific. Oh, yeah. um, in the park. But like I said, in any case, she just wasn't interested in going. Larson had none of those activities I just mentioned in mind. What he did have in mind was a walk up the Otter Cliffs, which is considered one of the most scenic spots in the park. Oh, yes. 
The trail from the parking lot to the cliffs isn't much of a trail. It's a maintained path to Otter Point, which is 110 feet high, one of the highest headlands along the Atlantic coast north of Rio de Janeiro. There's also Ocean Path, a long trail along the edge of the ocean from Sand Beach to the top of Otter Cliffs, but my guess is they weren't going to do that because it's several miles long and, you know, Kathy didn't like hiking and stuff. Kathy and Dennis drove the two hours to Mount Desert Island that Saturday, but didn't stick around. It was too crowded. So they turned around and went home with plans to go back the next day. And I just think of, oh my God, they drove in that traffic all the way out there, didn't do anything, and said they go back. That's always such a big weekend for getting outside in Maine. And it's beautiful with the fall foliage. But anyway, that Saturday night at work, Kathy worked the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. She told a co-worker that she was depressed about her marriage. Can I interrupt something? Where did she work? She worked as a nurse's aide in a nursing home in in Dexter. She didn't love Dennis and didn't even really like him that much. Still, she thought she could grow to love him. And more importantly, she told the co-worker, it was better than being alone. No, no. And I know I'm belaboring this, but you may have already guessed that Dennis isn't going to turn out to be a prize. But even if he was just a run-of-the-mill dud... Uh, ladies, you have to get over the feeling that there's nothing worse than being alone. you got to learn to love your own company. Well, as someone who's nearing 60 and has been alone um, in the sense that I've never shared a house with a man in my life. Or a woman. Well, right. But, I mean, I grew up with a big family and stuff. But, I know. Oh, um, that's true. But I can tell you that there are many, 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 many worse things than being alone. In fact, I like living in my own house. I think women are conditioned to believe they're a failure if they don't have a man in their life and specifically don't get married. And I have to tell you, right now, the thought of sharing a home, my home, with a guy, even if he were great, doesn't really appeal to me. No, I mean, think about it. You can watch whatever you want on TV. You can eat whatever and whenever you want. The toilet seat is always down. You can paint the kitchen orange if you want to. There's no smelly Mm. socks or underwear to pick up. No compromises and concessions to make. Just some food for thought there, but I digress. Despite the fact that she really, really didn't want to drive back to Acadia the next day, and who can blame her after working a night shift, she and Dennis did. They went later in the day, so maybe she got some sleep. I don't know. It wasn't an ideal day for hiking if you wanted to see the views. It was overcast and drizzly. If you're thinking that the outing sounds odd for Kathy, who didn't like hiking and was afraid of heights, you are correct. But actually, the details of this one would have been odd for anyone. Sunset that night was 5.56 p.m., and by all accounts, they reached Otter Point around 6. The sun goes down in eastern Maine very fast and early that time of year. Any time of year, actually, but once it starts getting fall very fast and it would have been dusk and near dark on top of it it was drizzling and if you've ever scrambled around on the wet granite rocks of the main coast you know how slick they can be in fact on the acadia national park website on the otter cliff page it says use utmost caution when near the cliffs the rocks may be slippery and little bits of sand and rock particles can act like marbles causing you to slip and fall severe injuries can result around 7 p.m Sunday, October 11th, the park rangers at Acadia got a phone call coming in from the payphone at Jordan Pond House, a Mm. restaurant in the park. It was Dennis. He told them his wife fell off on her cliff. Mm. At first, Dennis had flagged down a car on the Park Loop Road, but he apparently didn't trust the message to get through correctly. So he got in his car and drove the eight miles to Jordan Pond House and called the rangers himself. He told the rangers that he and Kathy had been hiking on the Otter Cliff Trail, 
And once they reached Otter Point, they headed off in separate directions to explore and look for otters. Mm-hmm. Now, call me cynical, but in late afternoon on a, or early evening on a drizzly day, I can't imagine you'd be able to spot sea otters from up there. I don't you'd know probably... if you would on a clear day. We'll get to that later. Okay. Later, the Bangor Daily News... Actually, we'll get to it right now. Later, the Bangor Daily News said wildlife experts said they'd never seen otters at the base of Otter Cliff or in Otter Cove. But I'm not sure a regular non-expert would know that. I'd certainly look for otters if I were there, because it's called Otter Cliff. I don't know if I would or not. But, but in any case, otters are no otters. You're not going to see them from 100 feet up no shit. on know. a rainy, foggy night. Chief Park Ranger Norman Dodge told the Bangor Daily News the next day, he heard his wife scream and ran to locate her. He couldn't find her. He then maneuvered himself so he could look over the cliffs, and he saw her lying there at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Dodge said there was no way anyone could get down there to get her, so Larson ran back up the path to the road and stopped a vehicle to get help. And as I said, feeling the message might get garbled, he drove the eight miles to Jordan Pond House. And called the rangers himself. Dodge told the BDN, It had been drizzling. The rocks were wet and it was slippery. They were there at dusk. Maybe it was dark enough so they couldn't quite see their footing. Unquote. And I think Sounds it's interesting. like a fun trip. I think it's interesting that he's speaking in plural, like they couldn't see their footing. Though she's the only one who slipped. You know, this was before the days of using they to refer to. I know. Anyway. The park rangers, as I said, got the call for help around 7. A crew of 15 rangers, as well as Mount Desert Island search and rescue volunteers, the Coast Guard, and a private boat owner helped recover Kathy's body. Boyd McFarland, the first ranger on the scene, said that Larson didn't seem to be distressed or show any emotion about Kathy's Mm. plight. Jennifer Applegate, a member of the MDI search and rescue team, was told to stand with Larson in case he needed help, um, (laughs) in case he was upset and needed comforting or something. He asked her how his wife was, and she wasn't quite sure. So she said she was being treated by the rescue team with the highest qualifying medical skills, and she kind of went on about it. And he cut her off saying, she's either breathing or she's not. When it was time to go to the hospital, Applegate asked him if he was okay to drive. He said, I got here, didn't I? What an ass. Yeah, he's an asshole. A ranger and Coast Guard member used technical climbing gear to rappel down to her body, but it was too dark, slippery, and dangerous to bring her back up that way. So they used a boat from the private boat owner to retrieve her. She was brought to MDI Hospital in Bar Harbor, where she was pronounced dead around 9 p.m. She had fallen about 80 feet, and her death had been instantaneous from multiple, multiple Ah. trauma, according to park ranger Norman Dodge. After Kathy was pronounced dead, Larson called Kathy's mother in Bangor said, My lady's gone. Ew. She fell off a cliff and is in a Bangor hospital, which wasn't true. He told her he, he didn't know what her condition was. This was after he'd been told she was dead. Hmm. And would call back later with more information, but he never called her back. But he did say, My lady is gone, so gone. Yeah, yeah he, yeah. Could imply. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yes. Dennis spent the night at the Eagles Lodge, a motel on Route 3 in Ellsworth. I've slept there before. I was going to say, if I'm not mistaken, it's still there, and it's a short distance from where her mom and dad lived at the time. He was picked up around 9.45 a.m. the next morning at the city pier in Ellsworth by Ellsworth police after a report he'd been seen walking in the woods in the water with no shoes on. Hmm. He was brought to the police station to make a phone call, but then he didn't make one and left, police said later. 
At 11.48 a.m., the Hancock County Sheriff's Office got a report of a man with no shoes carrying a bag and walking in the area of Dunbar's store in Sullivan, which is a town east of Ellsworth on Mm -hmm. Route 1. The police report said it had two other similar reports, the last one being that, quote, he'd been given a ride to Route 1 in Hancock by Cards Tideway and seemed to be out of it. Cards Tideway is a small grocery store, and Hancock is the town between Ellsworth and Sullivan. Hancock Deputy Steve McFarland found Larson walking in the westbound lane near Cards Tideway, and Larson said he thought he was in East Millinocket, and he was unsteady on his feet. Hmm. Quote, He said his wife was the one that drowned last night at Otter Creek, and he had taken a lot of sleeping pills and two beers to help him sleep, McFarland wrote in his report. Now... Otter Creek may be a simple slip of the tongue. There is no Otter Creek at Acadia National Park. Mm -hmm. It may be a simple slip of the tongue by Dennis Larson, but just pin it because we're going to come back to it later. Okay. Yeah. You know when I use jargon, I'm serious. Yeah. McFarland took Larson to Maine Coast Memorial Hospital in Ellsworth. About two blocks from where our parents lived at the time. And where our niece her sister Adele Nikki, was born. Oh, yes, sorry. and where our sister Nikki would work a couple years oh, later. Oh, that's right. She worked there, too. Yeah. Larson was treated and released. Later, he told a Maine State Police detective that he was suicidal, but then he admitted he really wasn't. Um, I think he was just putting on a little show, which was the implication later by the police, too, that he was kind of putting on a show to show how despondent he was. Hmm. Later that day... He went to Kathy's mother's house in Bangor to discuss funeral arrangements. Audrey, Kathy's mother, wanted her buried in the family plot, but Larson said Kathy had told him she'd wanted to be cremated and have her ashes scattered over the Atlantic Ocean when she died. That's it. Kathy's was the first death in the park in two years. Two deaths from falls in 1985, one of them from Otter Cliffs, about a mile from where Kathy met her death, prompted big changes at the park. While they can't forbid people from dangerous areas, they can make safety suggestions, Ranger Dodge told the BDN in a story that accompanied the one about Kathy's death on Tuesday, October 13th. The National Park Service published brochures about safety, put up signs at the trailheads of dangerous hikes, and warned novice hikers to stay away from the more dangerous areas. Dodge said that 50% of the climbing and hiking accidents at Acadia are on precipice trail, quote, Mm. a doozy of a hike, that goes along cliff walls and rocks and includes metal rungs in the cliff face yeah, that you have to climb like up and that. walk. I don't No. I wouldn't go on that. Network.maingenealogy.com says 36 people have died in Acadia National Ooh. Park since it became a park in 1919. Many more probably died before that. The beautiful and wild area, known as Eden to the locals, was mm-hmm. a big draw. Those who died since it became a park didn't all fall off cliffs, though a good number did. Some ran into trees on snowmobiles, some had heart attacks while hiking. At least a couple fell while posing for photos or trying to take photos. (laughs) A couple died by suicide. Mm -hmm. One worker died in the 1920s building the auto road up Cadillac Mountain. Many drowned, and I'm sure Becky remembers in 2009, Hurricane Bill which was out to sea but causing spectacular waves and the rangers kept trying to make people stay off the rocks but a nine-year-old girl was swept out to sea i thought she was three no she was nine so it's okay now right uh yeah it's not as sad a nine-year-old girl was swept out to sea 
mostly because people, I don't blame her, but people would not listen to the Rangers and well, Sathrax. Okay, what's the one I'm thinking of? It might not have been an I, I don't know. There's I don't know. Guy, there's been plenty of those. Because there was a guy holding his three-year-old daughter's hand and she got swept out. Yeah, see, and I then think. there was, I remember one when I was in New Hampshire. It wasn't at Acadia. It was I, somewhere, I, I think, on the Beach. New Hampshire coast where... Uh, the new town manager for, I think it was Dover, who just moved here from Colorado, and he and his kids were on some rocks. His kids got swept out or something. Ah, anyways. Now, the ocean is a um, brutal mistress. It is. Several others were also swept out to sea or drowned um, in other ways over the years. There were a lot of different kinds of deaths. You can't overestimate the power of the ocean, no. my friends. But only three that we know of were murdered. One was a ranger killed by a poacher who, quote, mistook him for a deer in hey, 1938. That That's not really a murder, but I classify it as one. And you can listen to, uh, I was going to look it up, episode, our episode about that. Um, also, I would say, even if I think that was an excuse because the guy was a ranger. And, and, guy, and this was a, poacher, was a poacher. Right. So, the, the poacher, described as elderly, <laughs> served one day in jail. Oh. In 1977, Leslie Spellman, a 27-year-old yoga instructor from Massachusetts, and her dog hitchhiked to Acadia for a backpacking trip. Oh, a group God. of tourists found her, quote, laid out in the tranquil Astaku Azalea Gardens in Northeast Harbor, a location better known for its peacefulness and beauty, unquote. She had been killed by blows to the head from a blunt instrument, yeah. and her murder was never solved. Oh. And then there was Kathy. Poor Kathy. On Tuesday, October 13th, a short obituary ran in the Bangor Daily News saying Kathy had died in an accident, leaving her parents, Audrey and Robert Pomeroy of Bangor, and brother, Robert Jr., and her husband, Dennis Larson. Ugh. She was educated in Dexter schools and worked as a nurse's aide in Dexter. It was a very short obituary. At first, her death was, at least publicly, considered an accident. Dodge even told the Bangor Daily News, in that story about park safety, that they may consider more safety measures because of her death. Quote, more signing and more warning, unquote, <laughs> warning people of the danger of strain from the maintained trail in that area. Dodge said that federal law, because Acadia is a national park, requires all deaths in the park to be reviewed. So a review board would be set up to look into her death. Quote, the National Park Service cannot prevent people from going out to these kinds of places. We can only recommend against it, Dodge said. If only... There were a service that could have warned women about Dennis Larson. Oh. The review board hadn't yet been set up when Dodge spoke to the BDN on October 12th, the day after Kathy died. That same day, however, Maine State Police also began investigating Kathy's death. On October 22nd, Larson called insurance agent Tim Callahan at Allstate and said he assumed the policy was canceled because he'd They'd never had that meeting on reducing the amount, which is stupid. But he'd prepaid for two months, so of course it wasn't canceled. Callahan told him he was due $400,000. And Larson said, It doesn't look good. The investigators are all over me because of Kathy's death. That's great. $400,000 worth of blood money. On October 24th, a little less than two weeks after Kathy's death, a story ran in the Bangor Daily News headline, Police Checking Suspicious Aspects of Dexter Woman's Death at Acadia. It said the police wouldn't say what the suspicious aspects were. 
The review that Ranger Dodge had mentioned a few weeks before was postponed until the police investigation was done. Mm. State Police Lieutenant Ralph Pinkham told the Bangor Daily News that they were following up as an unattended death investigation. The BDN reporter, Anna Hyde Deegan, asked if that meant it could be a homicide. It could mean that, Pinkham said. Actually, the Bangor Daily News should have said that hmm. any unattended deaths are usually, it's just a death that happens when nobody sees it happen. Frankly, I think the whole thing, particularly the weather and time of day, were suspicious enough for the police to look into I it. I know. And I remember saying at the time that I bet it was murder. Yes. But that's me. I say that a lot. <laughs> Dennis Larson, meanwhile, told Kathy's mother he was not interested in Kathy's house or in the small inheritance she'd gotten from her grandmother. Of course he wasn't. He was waiting for his $400,000 payday from the insurance payout. By the end of October, he was done with Maine. But he didn't leave Maine without a bang. After the shoeless wandering incident, the day after Kathy's death, he moved back to East Millinocket, renting a room from David McAdam. On November 3rd, McAdam was cleaning out his garage when he found six and a half sticks of dynamite. Larson wasn't there. The next morning, when McAdam went back to talk to him about the dynamite, the apartment was cleaned out. Larson had left a note saying he was going back home, and if the house wasn't the way it should be, well, he was sorry. It's not totally clear from the story how police made the connection between that and Bangor International Airport, but Larson was booked on a 220 flight out of Bangor. And hmm. Becky, did you, is that when you worked at the Mr. Paperback there, or was that a different time? When was it? What year? N 1987. No, I worked there from 1990, yeah, I worked there in 1993. Oh, okay. Police stopped Dennis Larson on Godfrey Boulevard, the main road into the airport from Union Street, at 2.05 p.m. Hmm. Apparently, at some point, he'd left three large cardboard boxes in the terminal on the floor next to the Bangor Travel Agency. And now police were concerned that the boxes might have bombs in them because of the dynamite. Larson offered to open the boxes to show them they were okay, but police weren't going to take his word for it. They detained him while they evacuated the airport and moved the boxes out to a clear place on the tarmac. Three planes sat nearby, unable to unload their passengers until the boxes were taken care of. In the first one they opened, they saw what they thought was a pipe bomb, so they blew up the boxes. There's a photo in the November 5th, 1987 Bangor Daily News of the explosion. It shows clothes flying through the air. Hmm. Because the only thing in the boxes were tools and clothes. The thing they thought was a pipe bomb was actually just a round cylinder that he kept drill bits in. <laughs> they couldn't connect the dynamite directly to Larson's, so they let him go. The next morning at 6.45 a.m., Dennis Larson boarded a plane for Great Falls, Montana. Reporter T.J. Tremble asked police chief Richard Stockford if Larson was going to be reimbursed for his lost clothes and tools. Quote, No, if he got reimbursed by anybody, it would be us. Not to sound cold and heartless about it, but he'd have to sue us for the money, Stockford said. He defended them blowing up the boxes for several paragraphs that I won't get into. And apparently this was a big kerfuffle at the time. People were um, felt that Dennis Larson was a grieving widower and they had just blown up all his worldly belongings. The Bangor Daily News <laughs> wrote an editorial supporting the decision to blow it up. There were letters to the editor. I won't go into the whole thing. And there was, <laughs> then there was a story the day after that with Stockford saying that only a few of the belongings were destroyed and the boxes weren't totally blown up and a lot of the stuff in them was okay. Although it didn't say if anyone was mailing the undamaged stuff to Larson in Montana. On November 12th, Larson called old friend Tim Callahan 
at the Allstate office from Montana and asked him to begin the claims process on Kathy's life insurance. Detective Jeffrey Harmon conducted extensive interviews with Larson. He had done it before Larson left for Montana, and they continued throughout the following months. Larson himself instigated many of their meetings, either by visiting Harmon at the state police barracks in Orono or by calling him at the barracks or at his home. What a weirdo. Yes. Larson told Harmon, well, trying to control the investigation. Yeah, okay. yeah. Larson told Harmon the day after Kathy died he was aware of the insurance policy, but then on yeah. October 20th, he told him he canceled it. And remember how he'd set up that appointment with Callahan to talk about lowering the amount? My guess is it was to make it look like he didn't kill her for the insurance, but like I said, they had prepaid for two months. So on October 20th, he told Harmon, the cop, he'd canceled the policy, and it was October 22nd he called Callahan and had that conversation where he said he thought the policy was canceled, although I don't think he really thought that. I think he was just trying to make himself look innocent. Dennis Larson always insisted to police detective Harmon that he and Kathy had gone their separate ways upon arriving at Otter Cliffs on that Sunday and that she must have slipped on the rocks and fallen over the cliff. On February 1st, 1988, police detective Jeff Harmon flew to Montana to talk to Larson. Harmon interviewed Larson for six hours. At Mm. first, Larson maintained his story and even dressed it up a little. He said they'd had a bad meal in Bar Harbor earlier in the day and had a bet that whoever spotted a sea otter first would get to pick the next restaurant. Jesus. But Harmon repeatedly told Larson to tell the truth, as we know from the Reed interrogation method. interrogation method, yes. He told him that there was bruising on Kathy's shoulder that showed she was grabbed or pushed. Now, I'm not sure if this is true or if it was just another Reed technique because that never comes up again she did have multiple trauma from falling more than 80 feet but she didn't hit a lot of things on her way down so it wasn't so much as bruising but just you know her body had kind of you know hit the ground and also it would be hard how would they actually even know unless she you know anyway well sometimes for instance if somebody had tried to strangle her yeah. Even after falling, you would see, you know, what I'm saying. So yes. it's not beyond the realm of possibility, but I I haven't seen that anywhere else except for that he said that in his interview. In any case, after he said it, Larson ended up changing his story. Mm-hmm. He said that she said she didn't love him and wanted out of the marriage, and he, quote, lost control, unquote. <laughs> she shoved him. They always say that. Oh, so he shoved her back, and the next thing he knew, she was going over the edge. Yeah, right. I didn't want to remember it, he told Harmon. I wanted to hide the fact that I lost control like that because I'm not proud of it because it caused the death of my lady. Ugh. He said he doesn't really remember it that well, except for, you know, he shoved her. They were about eight to ten feet from the edge. They shoved her, and the next thing he knew, she was going over. Oh, I guess yeah. I pushed her too hard, he said. Hmm. Harmon arrested him and charged him with murder. Hmm. In a newspaper story at the time, it said that Larson was being held on an unrelated burglary charge, that police had gotten a tip the week before, so it would have been the same time Harmon flew to Montana, that Larson had fabricated a burglary to collect a $5,000 insurance payout. Which is true, but it was very confusing the way it was written in the Bangor Daily News at the time. He did commit insurance. In fact, the insurance fraud was with Allstate in Hmm. uh, Montana, his favorite agency. And I have a little more about that later. But in any case, the day before Detective Harmon flew to Montana 
To interview Larson that last time, he tracked down Janine Whitney Larson, Larson's second wife. Mm. She still lived in Montana, although at some point she had lived in Minnesota, too. In his interview with her on January 1st, 1988, she said that they got married in December 1982 and divorced in May 1987. After that, Larson left Montana immediately, saying he had to get away from her for two years. But in August 1987... This was around the time he met Kathy. He began writing her letters from Maine, saying he still loved her and he'd be back soon. She told police that he'd told her many times that all he really needed to be happy in life was $100,000. Hmm. Quote, he said if he had $100,000, he wouldn't have to work and he could do whatever he wanted. Well, you know, he can join the fucking club. <laughs> That's Maureen, not Janine, But that 100000 doesn't last very long. Well, I could get my book written. Yeah, that's true. But that would be $229,290.49 in today's money. Okay. Oh, so that's you a little better. Yeah, I did, didn't I? Nice. Funny thing, though, even though he told Janine in August that he would be back soon and try to win her back, he told Harmon, Detective Harmon in October, I kept getting confused because Larson and Harmon sound so much like, yes. but he told Detective Harmon in October that he had no desire to return to Montana and he no longer cared about Janine. Hmm. In October 1988, a year after Kathy's death, and there are lengthy evidence suppression hearings and there are a lot of legal maneuverings that I won't go into, but they had some more suppression hearings in October 1988 and they were held over several days. The biggest point being that defense lawyers Bill Firm and Ed McSweeney wanted Larson's statements to police suppress because Harmon presented himself, quote, more as a confidant than as someone who's going to arrest Larson. Now, as we all know by now, there are false confessions and such, and we know how those happen. But I'll say this in Dennis Larson's case. If a cop is questioning you about your wife's death, you can pretty much assume he's not just being your friend. No shit. You know, Brian Rines, a clinical psychologist, said at the hearings that in his talks with Larson, Larson described Harmon as his friend. He said Larson was, Rines, the psychologist, said Larson was in the critical range of stress when he talked to Harmon, given his divorce, his move across the country, a job change, and the fact, here's something new, he was arrested and incarcerated in Portland because of a fight, and he had to borrow money. Mm-hmm. And that's the only time I've seen any mention of that. I don't know when it happened, and I don't know if that's something Larson made up to tell the shrink, or if it happened and it's just not in any of the stories. I couldn't find any articles huh. that said he was arrested and incarcerated, even a police log. Ryan said that Larson was shy and alienated in interpersonal relations, and quote, he typically appears grim and cheerless and doesn't like to make changes for fear of losing control. He said he was a loner, and he was uncomfortable with the main charges hanging over him. And it's like, yeah, no no shit. Poor I'd baby. be uncomfortable, too, if I were charged with murder. <laughs> no shit. Quote, he didn't want to be left in limbo as his friends were turning away from him because of the, quote, hanky-panky, unquote, back in Maine, Ryan what? said. Okay. And they also had an issue with what happened when Larson was arrested, that whole burglary charge. Apparently, they they searched Larson's home after Janine, his ex-wife, said there were some stolen items there. Larson consented in writing to the search, and Harmon, the main cop, was at the search. Now, Judge, at this hearing, Judge Jack O. Smith, and O is his middle initial, so I wonder if he's related to Frank O. Smith, the the book critic, but Judge Jack O. Smith said, 
Wait, I'm confused now. Why were Maine police at the search uh -oh. in Montana? I have no idea, said Montana Detective Ken Anderson, who was in Maine to testify at the hearing. But then a few minutes later, he said they were, in they, they were there in case anything of interest in their case came up. Apparently, what had happened, in it, I saw it in a much later story, is back when he was still married to Janine... Larson had said his house was burglarized, and I even found the thing in the police log when he reported it, and this long list of stuff, all sorts of hunting equipment and uh. guns and photography equipment and jewelry and stuff was stolen worth $5,000, and Allstate gave him a $5,000 payout, and Janine said that he made it all up, and I don't know when she told the police that there were stolen items in the house, if that's just kind of a garbled thing, and actually the items he claimed were stolen well, were, that would make were more still sense. there, yeah. Anyway, those motions to suppress were rejected. From February 4th to March 9th, 1989, Larson went on a hunger strike until yeah. the Bangor Daily News published his letters criticizing the state's slowness and bringing him to trial. I kind of looked for his letters and didn't find him. I was too busy looking for other things. His lawyers had also, in June 1988, filed for a change of venue out of Hancock County, and that was granted in April 1989, with the trial scheduled to begin May 1st, 1989, in Aroostook County oh. in the court in Holton. But days before the jury selection was to start, on April 29th, 1989. Your birthday. That's right. That would have been my 28th birthday. Aww. Larson asked for a bench trial rather than a jury trial. Aww. That made the whole change of venue unnecessary. So Judge Jack O. Smith moved the trial back to the Hancock County Courthouse in Ellsworth. Quote, I feel this trial is going to be based on emotion, Larson said in his request. What is required is the impartiality of a professional. And I always say, Maureen always says, don't ask for a bench trial unless you're innocent. But oh, what do I know? shit. Because the judge is going to look at facts. It's exactly, Larson says it's going to be based on emotion. What it's actually going to be based on is some circumstantial evidence that a judge is going to look at more clearly than exactly. a jury. But in fact, Judge Smith cautioned him. If you're going to have the fact finder be a judge, you only have to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt to one person, not 12. That's right. So be sure. And I won't go through the whole trial. Much of the information that came out I've included in the narrative so far, but I'll point out some key highlights. Okay. One key witness was Janine Larson, mm. and that, again, was Mrs. Larson number two. By the time of the trial in May 1989, Jean was remarried. She said that her four-and-a-half-year marriage to Dennis was marked by highs and lows, usually tied to his employment or lack of it. She said he'd have long periods of unemployment, and he would move other to other states for high-paying jobs when she rather he would get a steady job where they lived in Great Falls, Montana, and be home all the time. Mm, when he was gone, she was left to care for their two kids. She had adopted his daughter from his um, from a previous marriage, and they had a kid of their own. And they, uh, at the time, owned five rental properties, apartment buildings, duplexes. So she had to care for those when he wasn't around. The Bangor Daily News story says she, quote-unquote, complained she was left to care for yeah. the kids and the thing. But I think that reporter... The legendary A.J. Higgins, who is a guy, um, is editorializing a little there. Yeah. Chillingly, they had a whole life insurance policy similar to the one Larson had with Kathy Frost with a double indemnity clause for Janine in the case of accidental uh. death. 
The defense objected to most of Janine's testimony, saying that it came under the confidential clause of spouse's conversation, but the judge, Jack O. Smith, said that only applied to confidential conversations between husband and wife, not general information, and that's something we'll have to ask Matt about when Mm. we get him back. Yeah. Okay. Right on the list. I did write it on the list. Oh, good. She said when they were divorced, she got the house in Great Falls in custody of the two kids. He said he was leaving for two years, but he hoped to reconcile when he got back. Quote, He made it sound like he wanted to come back to me, possibly remarry, or be together forever in any case. Unquote. When he got to Maine, he wrote to her frequently. And remember, people, this is 1987, and people wrote these things called letters <laughs> and mailed them. I still have yeah, some. I used to. Yeah. He also phoned her about once a week and talked about how he was building for their future together and hinted he might be back sooner than the two years he had originally said. Mm-hmm. She said that September of 1987, his contact dropped off dramatically, but he never said he intended to remarry. She didn't know he had married Kathy Frost. The last communication she got from him was a note written on what's described in the story as a piece of scratch paper in October that said, I'm going to make my home in Maine now. Hmm. I think that's just more of him trying to cover his ass and look yeah. innocent. Assistant Attorney General Jeff Heim, representing the state at the trial, asked Janine why she didn't keep any of his letters. Quote, I didn't want him involved in my life, she said. I don't blame her. Yeah. It would have been interesting to see when he mailed the scratch paper note, like if it was after Kathy's death. I know. I you know, or before. Too. Some other interesting testimony was from Richard J. Ballheiser of Great Falls, Montana, who said that during a beer soak conversation 10 years before in 1980, during a hunting trip, they discussed get rich quick schemes at length, including train holdups and commandeering armored cars. Quote, We'd be like a modern-day Jesse James, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor, Ballheiser said. Eventually, during that conversation, Larson brought up a murder and marry scheme. He said that there were foreign women in places like the Philippines and South America who would be willing to marry Americans just to get out of their native land. Ballheiser said the get-rich-quick scheme involved marrying one, taking out an insurance policy, and having her die by an accident and then collecting. Quote, that would be the scheme on a grandiose scale, Balheiser said. <laughs> I'm not sure what he meant by that, but I liked the quote. I know. The defense tried to have the testimony stricken, saying that the conversation was, quote, a game, unquote, and it was made under unreliable circumstances because they were both drunk. Oh. Balheiser didn't help things. Assistant A.G. Himes' attempt to question him got off to a slow start. Reporter A.J. Higgins writes, quote, because the longtime friend of the defendant initially responded with several half-minute pauses, followed by the witness's admission that he, quote, just couldn't remember any details, unquote. I think A.J. Higgins is the one that Governor, Governor LePage threatened to punch in the face. It might have, he might have been. He's He was around for like 50 years before he retired. And by the way, I know this is a distracting aside, but I can't help myself. There was an unnecessary comma between several and half minutes in that quote. And it's one of my major peeves. Several half minute pauses. You don't need a comma. You may have learned in grammar school that if there are more than one adjective, you have to have them separated by a comma. But actually, if one adjective helps modify the next adjective in the noun, you don't have a comma. All right. So but several half-minute pauses doesn't see it. it doesn't really matter to I know, but it drove me crazy. I I'm just sorry. have to say it because I see it all the time. And, it and me that crazy. was A.J. Higgins writing? Yes. 
AJ. Yeah. No wonder Governor LePage wanted to punch him in the face. Right. Anyway, Heim countered the defense objection by saying that Larson's thoughts on marrying and staging an accident to collect insurance show he had a subjective awareness of the concept. Mm -hmm. The court also listened to State Police Detective Jeff Harmon's six-hour interview, which he had taped, with Larson at his home in Great Falls on February 1st, 1988. During the interview, Harmon read methods the hell out of Larson, constantly telling him to tell the truth. (laughs) <laughs> he also tells him things like Kathy had told her family that the weekend she was killed was the weekend she was going to tell Larson she wanted out of the three-week-old marriage. And I can't see that anyone testified to that in the trial. I don't see it mentioned anywhere I doubt else. that's true. Right. It sounds so like I, some read thingy. Right, because Kathy had been telling people even though she was unhappy, she was going to stay with him. So I think it's just a read technique thing. I think also the thing about... Him telling Larson the remarks on his shoulder from her being grabbed or pushed was a read technique thing because it doesn't look like anyone testified to that at the trial. Or it just could have been left out of the stories. I don't read the transcripts. And as you'll see, there are some major things left out of the stories. And I'm not saying I think Larson's innocent or he gave a false confession, but I'm also trying to you know, convey the fact that the record doesn't always necessarily represent the facts. Mm-hmm. The Bangor Daily News article by, as I said, Maine journalism legend A.J. Higgins. And the, by the way, that's J-A-Y, not the letter J. which oh, is always I never con- knew that. Yeah. I used to always hear him on the radio. Right. Uh, public radio. Okay. Depicts Larson's confession as heard on the tapes as, quote, Larson teetered back and forth between his news story and his original version while whimpering about the consequences <laughs> of telling Harmon all the facts. The truth is going to send me to jail, said Larson, his voice choked with emotion. I can't put myself in jail. In a barely audible whisper, this is still the BDN story, Larson finally admitted to Harmon that he gave Frost a push in retaliation after she shoved him and said she was leaving him. I pushed her too hard, I guess, he told Harmon. Mm-hmm. Harmon later testified that Larson changed his story once again in an interview later before the grand jury proceedings. Larson in that interview said he pushed her as she tried to make her way back to the trail and get past him, and he can't really remember her actually shoving him. She was just trying to get by mm-hmm. him, and yeah. I don't know why. But anyway, after the state rested, the defense brought up the standard motion to dismiss, as they always do, and it's usually a routine thing, but... In this one, the defense contended that no one had proved that the body found at the bottom of Otter Cliff was actually Kathy. Oh, jeez. They said no one had officially identified her. And it seemed weird to me. I remember it at the time. And it's one of the main things I remember about this, you know, because I was reading about it. And it still seems weird today. I mean, seriously, who else is it going to be? I know. Anyway, that motion was made on a Friday, about a week into the trial, and the prosecution had to line up witnesses for the following Monday to say, yes, it was Kathy. The defense didn't present a case. Remember, the burden of proof is on the prosecution, and the defendant doesn't have to be quote-unquote proven innocent, though people say that somebody has to prove himself innocent all the time. Larson, over the weekend, chose not to testify, which I think is an interesting choice. You would think he would want to. Mm-hmm. Especially given, you know, the defense insisting that Harmon, the cop, misled him and everything. You'd think he'd want to testify I about know. that. Maybe but, he thought the judge, since it was a judge. Whatever. Yeah, well, the prosecution apparently cleared up the body ID thing Monday morning, though the BDN story doesn't say that. <sighs> the defense then argued there was no hard evidence against Larson, just circumstantial. 
And lawyer Bill Firm specifically said that Detective Harmon, as I said, twisted Larson into admitting to a story that he thought would keep him out of jail. Judge Jack O. Smith deliberated for about three hours (laughs) before finding Larson guilty. And I know this isn't how it happens, but I always picture it when a judge deliberates. I always picture him kind of sitting in his chair, you know, kind of looking out the window or something, going, dum 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 deliberating. The prosecution wanted a license. Larson's attorneys asked for 25 to 30 years. But in August 1989, Larson, who was 39 by then, was sentenced to 50 years. Mm. Maine doesn't have parole, but with what's called good time, Larson could be out in 30 to 35 years, Judge Jack O. Smith said. He said that, quote, extreme cruelty needed to be present to sentence someone to life, and the state hadn't proved that. I guess it's all in the eyes of the beholder, but I see a lot of cruelty and how poor Kathy was treated. I, I think the whole, when you think about the whole thing, it was very, very cruel. I don't know okay. how cruelty is defined legally. Maybe it has to be physical yeah. or something, but I can't think of anything more cruel than what, or a few things more cruel than how Dennis Larson treated Kathy oh. Frost. And Smith told Larson, I think it's important that you retain some hope that one day you'll leave prison. Uh-huh. Defense attorney Firm, who said they'd immediately appeal, called Kathy's death a tragic accident. Mm. Heim, the assistant AG, however, said Kathy was, quote, nothing but a commodity to Larson, Mm. a means to achieve an end. He called Larson vicious, cold-blooded, intelligent, and shrewd. Before the sentencing, in fact, during the sentencing hearing, Heim brought out a three-foot-high photo of Otter Cliffs for the judge. He said that while Kathy, again, 280, 300 pounds which they had to keep stressing in all the stories, was afraid of heights. Larson had skydived and was a hiker and climber and was in his element. Kathy Frost Larson never had a chance, Heim said. Her last moments were her realization of her own worst nightmare. There could be no worse cruelty than the way she died. Mm -hmm. So he, Heim kind of agrees with me, but I think the whole thing was cruel. The whole thing from the get-go. Larson also addressed the core, of course. Calling the state's evidence a hodgepodge of information mm-hmm. and said again he was duped into making incriminating statements by Harmon, who led him to believe he was his friend. Quote, <sighs> he made me give him a story that fit his facts. My confession is no longer relevant. I'll go to prison and wait my appeal. A.J. Higgins wrote, at no time did Larson express any regret over the death of Kathy Frost Larson during court proceedings Thursday, which was the sentencing. He did, however, ask Justice Smith to search within himself and ask whether he had convicted him of murder as an easy way out. <laughs> That's a good way to get the judge on your side. I know. In September 1989, Audrey Pomeroy, Kathy's mother, filed a three-count wrongful death lawsuit against Larson in Penobscot County Superior Court. Three years later, in July 1990, Larson's appeal was denied. Aside from the issues of Harmon duping him and Kathy's body not being properly identified, which they brought up in the appeal as well, his attorneys also said that because Kathy's death was in a national park, it should have been a federal trial, not a state one. Hmm. But actually, a few years before, I won't go into all the details, there had been some legislative thing that allowed uh, Maine State Police to investigate deaths in um, Acadia National Park, so that was Hmm. no longer an issue. The state presented more than adequate evidence to warrant the Superior Court's belief beyond a reasonable doubt 
that the defendant did indeed either intentionally or knowingly murder Kathy Frost Larson, Judge Victor McCusick wrote. He also wrote, The state also proved that defendant had previously outlined a scheme to make money through life insurance through the accidental death of a wife. That he came to Maine actively seeking a wife. That despite the apparent differences in their interests, he married Kathy soon after meeting her and immediately took out a substantial life insurance policy on her life with double indemnity in case of accidental death. In 1994, the U.S. Supreme Court turned down the chance to look at the case. Mm -hmm. So, is that the end of the story? Is it? Not quite. Here's something that was in both appeals. All-state agent Joseph Winago of Montana also testified at the trial. This, I can't figure out why, was not in the Bangor Daily News trial coverage. A.J. Winago had processed Larson's insurance claim when his first wife, Leslie Gale Larson, died in 1975. The appeal argued that Winago's testimony about that was prejudicial. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Leslie Gale Larson had drowned in a <gasps> creek... When she and Dennis Larson were picking mushrooms. The court's ruling denying the appeal, which I got on Justia, says the state offered Winago's testimony to show Larson's experience and familiarity with life insurance and death benefits following the accidental death of a spouse and experience infrequently encountered showed that he was familiar with it. Larson apparently, in the appeal contended that the innuendo value of Winago's mm-hmm. testimony greatly increased the danger of unfair prejudice. Now, I went back and looked through the BDN trial coverage, and for whatever reason, this wasn't written about, and also wasn't brought up in the brief stories about the appeal. Leslie's death was mentioned in the story in July 1990, when the appeal was settled, but not in connection with the trial or anything. It was just kind of a two-paragraph non-sequitur hanging hmm. on the end of the story which I thought was weird. The only time before this that the Bangor Daily News had mentioned Leslie's death was in February 1988, when Larson was arrested. Montana police at the time told the BDN they were opening an investigation into the death of Larson's first wife, Leslie. Mm. Mm. Leslie Gale Reynolds, 20, died June 11, 1975, when she drowned, supposedly, after falling into Prickly Pier Creek, near the town of Wolf Creek, Montana, about 50 miles south of Great Falls. Larson told police at the time, Leslie, who he'd been married to for a year, was looking for mushrooms, and the creek was high because of snow runoff, and part of the bank broke away and she fell in. Where she fell in was about three miles from where the creek empties into the Missouri River, and speculation was maybe she had been swept downstream into the Missouri River. And remember how the cop who found Larson wandering the day after Kathy died said he, Larson told him he's the one whose wife died at Otter yes. Creek. And I wonder, I wonder if it was a Freudian slip. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Larson told police at the time that he jumped in and tried to save Leslie, but couldn't because the creek was too high. An EMT who arrived on the scene shortly after thought it was weird that Larson's clothes weren't wet. <laughs> but apparently no one else did. Well, police said in 1988 they were, quote, reopening the investigation. It doesn't look like there really was an investigation at the time. Deputy Sheriff Edward Child of the Lewis and Clark County Sheriff's Department told the Bangor Daily News in February 1988 that the report on Leslie's death was one page, and it was only about the search for her, and the only interview was with a diver who tried to find her body. It's going to be pretty difficult to investigate, Child said in 1988. <laughs> And at the time, there was no indication they considered it anything other than a drowning. And here's what was in the newspaper. 
The headline is, Young Falls Woman is Believed Drown. A young Great Falls mother was missing Wednesday and believed drowned in Little Prickly Pear Creek, about one mile north of Wolf Creek. The Lewis and Clark County Sheriff's Office said Leslie G. Larson, 20, of 424 26th Street, fell into the creek Tuesday evening while she and her husband, Dennis, were picking mushrooms. When she stepped near the creek, the soil, which had been eroded from beneath, gave way and plunged her into the swollen stream. The Sheriff's Office said it was possible that she became trapped under a log jam. Officials said her husband, a carpenter, searched for her in the creek and was nearly swept away himself by the current. When the mishap occurred, the couple's four-month-old daughter, Julia Ann, was with his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd Larson of 3028 7th Avenue South. Her parents are Mr. and Mrs. William T. Reynolds of 412. I think it's funny that they say the daughter was four months old because I found her birth announcement, and it was in January 1975, so she was actually six months old. There was a... An interview with her mother where her mother said the baby was four months old. And I think it's because that meant the baby would have been born six and a half months after they were married. Oh, yeah. And um, so I think the mother didn't want people. Yeah. You know, they did search for Leslie's body, but couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. And they called off the search after that. And then in August, they just declared that they weren't going to search anymore. Hmm. In February 1988, when Larson was arrested for Kathy's death, Deputy Sheriff Child told the Bangor Daily News that the diver who searched for her told police he didn't think she drowned in the creek because they'd had other drownings and were always able to find the bodies. Nobody really elaborated, but I get the impression that there was a lot of, like, tree branches and stuff. You know, it wasn't just this clear... Shot. As I said, her body was never found, and seven mm-hmm. years later, in 1982, when Larson could declare her dead, he collected $20,000 in insurance money from Allstate. Hmm. Although another story I saw in, in the Montana paper said he successfully petitioned the court to get the money early, but every other reference I see says he got it in 1982. So again, that's hmm. another thing that that's I don't weird. know. It serves to mention, too, that she died... A few years before he and his drinking buddy had the conversation about the marry and murder thing. I'm still confused as to why the BDN didn't have that in their trial story. The article with his friend in it said that six people testified that day, but he's the only person they quoted. So maybe AJ had had an appointment somewhere and didn't Uh, stick around. It's not clear where the Montana investigation went in the years after 1988 when he was arrested for Kathy's murder, by the time he was convicted and that all happened in court, people were talking about it like it was just this kind of suspected thing, but nothing was really going on. The articles I saw in the Great Falls Tribune, they started out great guns investigating, but then another young woman was found murdered who had just been murdered like a couple weeks before, so they had to turn their attention to that. And it's funny, I just looked at two newspapers, the Bangor Daily News and Great Falls Tribune, for my information, and it's amazing how many other women murdered stories I I came across while doing this. But in any case, in 1998, 10 years after Dennis Larson was arrested for Kathy Frost's murder, and nine years after he was convicted... Leslie's family, as well as the sheriff departments in Cascade and Judith Basin counties, pushed the state of Montana to do more with the case. Oh, good. 
Those two sheriff departments are the ones that initially responded when she first drowned. In September 2000, 10 years after his appeal was denied, 11 years after he was convicted, Larson confessed to a Montana investigator who'd gone to Maine to interview him that he killed Leslie too. Larson said he pushed Leslie into the creek and watched her float away toward Missouri in the deep, fast spring runoff. But then another account says he watched her lodge under a log and drown. In any case, he was charged with her murder. But by that time, her death was being referred to as a disappearance. Well, there was no doubt she was dead, even after Larson's confession about the creek. There was skepticism that she was ever in the creek. Yeah, As I that said, <clears throat> divers at the time said even with the fast current and runoff, they usually or always found bodies. Though, the creek was a good option. In the couple weeks before Leslie drowned, I looked through the newspapers, the Great Falls Tribune, where Dennis lived. There were constant stories in the paper almost daily about high water and flooding from spring runoff, and Prickly Pier Creek was frequently cited as a place with flooding danger and bank erosion. So just like with Kathy going to Acadia on a rainy day close to dusk, they went to look for mushrooms in the evening during a huge spring flood surge at a creek that had been in the paper for weeks as a flood danger with erosion. So I think it's very possible that... Um, but, but the other possibility is that that was a good right. story. Because yes. if no one saw her there, who knows? Right. Mike Batista, one of the Montana State Investigators who was assigned to Leslie's case in 1998, said that Leslie's family had always had suspicions about her death. Hmm. They have been very much a driving force in resolving this issue, he said. The affidavit related to Larson's confession and the charge was released after a freedom of access motion by three Montana newspapers. The prosecution wanted it kept secret, saying that releasing it could jeopardize his right to a fair trial. At the time, Larson was 50 and had a projected release date of, from the main state prison of 2022 for Kathy's death. The papers had reported that Larson said he wouldn't fight extradition. He was facing up to 100 years in Montana if convicted of Leslie's death. He was trying to negotiate with the Montana investigators to get 10 years. He, they don't say this in the papers, but I look back, that burglary charge, he had been given a 10-year suspended sentence, hmm. um, which means if he committed another felony yeah. or whatever, he would have to serve 10 years, so maybe that's where he got the 10 years from. But yeah. Mike McGrath, Lewis and Clark County DA in charge of the prosecution, said he was confident they could convict even without Leslie's body. The legal issue isn't whether you have a body or not, it's whether you have enough evidence or not, he told the Great Tr- mm-hmm. Falls Tribune. Larson and Leslie were married in June 1974 when she was just 19. He would have been 24. Larson took out an insurance policy on her immediately after the wedding. With, as I said earlier, the same double indemnity for accidental death rider that Kathy's had. Leslie gave birth to a daughter, Julia Ann, in January 1975. After Leslie disappeared on June 11, 1975, Dennis got the insurance payout either in 1982, after the seven years or earlier, it's not clear. He used the money to buy a motor home, left the, his daughter with Leslie's mother, and started traveling around the country. Hmm. Another item about him I found in the newspapers was from November 28, 1982, a truck accident where he was apparently the driver, and he and the two others who were in their early 20s were seriously injured. I guess he wasn't seriously injured enough to 
stop his shenanigans. I'm surprised he didn't try to sue someone's insurance. Maybe he did. Maybe that was another insurance fraud. He married his second wife, Janine Whitney, on New Year's Eve 1981, and Janine adopted Julia Ann, the daughter. By the time they divorced in 1987, they owned five apartment buildings in Great Falls to rent out, and they also had a son in March 1984. One article said that his marriage to Leslie may not have been his first, but it was just mentioned in passing, and I couldn't find anything in any other story about that. I did some searching through the newspapers, I found the dissolution of a marriage in the Spokane paper that covered Great that also covered Great Falls, Spokane, Washington. And in January 1975, which would have been after he married Leslie, but sometimes those things run months and months after they happen. But yeah. it was a dissolution of marriage between oh. a Dennis R. Larson and a woman whose name I'm not going to say because she's still around, but she had an odd spelling to her first name. And I looked her up. They were both in the same high school class. Oh. But I couldn't find a wedding announcement. you're such an investigator. I know. I know. I'm an internet sleuth. But I couldn't find a wedding announcement, and I didn't really have time. And so who knows? Also, she is a very accomplished woman who went to Barnard after high school and then got a master's from Johns Hopkins and worked. I don't know if she's retired now, but for many years worked for a major global relief organization. So she did have a very ill-advised early young marriage to Larson for whatever reason. I don't blame her (laughs) for not wanting to make a big deal about it. You know, it could have been one of those teenage things. I think it's interesting. I looked, I could find no wedding announcement. I did find the dissolution of marriage. Anyway, Larson um, was charged with Leslie's murder in September 2000, and the wheels of extradition from Maine to Montana for the trial started grinding. But Larson issued his own sentence on December 31st, 2000. He put some duct tape across his mouth with the word Geronimo written on it, Mm. clipped a clothespin to his nose, opened the window in the craft room of the third floor of the old Maine State Prison in Thomaston, and did a swan dive headfirst out of the window onto the jagged granite rocks below where they had a quarry at the old yes, prison. Yes, they did. Kind of re- half recreation yard, half quarry. Um, yeah, they used to play baseball in it. Quote, all indications are it was a suicide, Warden Jeffrey mm. Merrill said. Larson left two notes. One saying his belongings should go to an Auburn, Maine church. No mm. indication why he picked that. Maybe they wrote to him and, you know, offered him comfort. The other one complained about the prison staff. Oh, wow. A note with a name and the name was never disclosed, was found in his pocket. Authorities wouldn't say whose name it was or if it had any significance. There were 28 people in the craft room when he jumped, including three guards. Hmm. There was no indication anyone pushed her through Larson from the window, which didn't have bars because it overlooked an enclosed area, said State Department of Public Safety spokesman Hmm. Steve McCausland. Steve McCausland, yay. There were some oddities about Larson's death, the duct tape, the clothespin, the notes, but then it's an odd story overall. His pants were down around his knees when he was found, but that's because they caught on something as he dived out the window. That's a final humiliation, isn't it? Oh, well. They were also still trying to, quote, figure out the meaning of the duct tape and clothespin, Merrill said. The thing that buffaloes us is the clothespin and the duct tape. Like, but I think my guess would be that they weren't sure he died if the three-story fall didn't, like, you know, that he'd suffocate or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
That makes sense. Merrill also, and let me get through this, okay? Merrill also speculated he wrote Geronimo on the duct tape because maybe he was of Indian descent. And I... (laughs) Let me finish. And I say, are you fucking kidding me? Isn't that what every kid of our generation said when they jumped from somewhere? A story... A story in the Bangor Daily News a day later says, Geronimo may have been an allusion to a word many U.S. combat parachutists uttered as they jumped from the planes during World War II. Geronimo was the nickname of a historical figure, an Apache leader who lived from 1829 to 1909. So apparently no one at the Bangor Daily News knew or remembered that every kid in the U.S. of a certain generation used to yell that. When they yes. jumped, and I'm sure it did come from World War II, yes, it but did. it's more yeah. like you jump into the pool, you jump yes. off the slide, you yell Geronimo. I still yes. do it sometimes. Yes. Not to belabor it, but what the fuck? Yeah. Anyway, after that, not much happened in the investigation into Leslie's death. Then yeah. in 2007, a couple renovating their home in Great Falls yeah. f- found bones under the bathroom floor on property Larson. It was property Larson once owned. At the time mm-hmm. he owned it, the place where the bathroom where they found the bones under was a garage. But it turned out the bones were from an animal. Oh, damn it. Although, apparently, before the property was in the news, several tenants had complained to the landlord that it was haunted. They'd seen the shadowy figure of a woman. And these were different tenants. There was a story in the Great Falls Tribune that I didn't delve into that much, but these were different tenants at different times who didn't know the history or anything. What In one case, this guy's kids, little kids, kept telling him they saw a woman, and the guy didn't believe in ghosts, but he told the landlord and Poor stuff. Poor so Leslie. Yes. She's trying to tell people. Since Batista and Detective Joe Arubi took over the case in 1988, they searched all the rental properties many times, but found nothing. Arubi, the cop who interviewed Larson at the Maine State Prison in September 2000 and got him to confess to Leslie's death and charged him, said Larson told him he pushed her into the creek, watched her drown, and tangled in some branches. He knew he was going to kill her when he took her down there, Aruby told the Great Falls Tribune. Aruby said Prickly Pear Creek was 10 feet higher than normal, and he thinks Larson was telling the truth. Quote, mm-hmm. personally, I still think she's somewhere in the river. He had no reason to lie to me. And here's probably something that won't surprise most listeners. Aruby said that Dennis had a lot of photos in his cell, but they were all of himself. Quote, all of the pictures were of him in Vietnam, him hunting, hiking, or on a cliff overlooking a valley. Dennis was impressed with Dennis. Just before he killed himself, as I said earlier, Larson was trying to dictate to a Ruby how things would go when he returned to Montana. He wanted only 10 years for Leslie's death, time served after he was done with his main sentence, and wanted to be out of prison by the time he was 80. He told a Ruby he'd found God and he knew he'd done wrong. But Ruby said he also worked himself into such a stupor about coming to Montana that he just ended up killing himself. Mm-hmm. And that is the story of Dennis Larson and his unfortunate yes. wives. Oh, poor wives. Now, how much of that did you remember from... I didn't know. I didn't know much of that at all. And there are so many similar ones. Um, I know. There's the guy that tried to kill his wife by pushing her off at her cliff. Yeah, um, and, and he's the one, isn't he the one who, it turned out 25 years before, yes, he had pushed his wife off yes, Mount McKinley? Yes. Yes. So that that is confusing. And there are so, so many, as we know, anyone who watches Dateline in 48 hours, 
there was a guy somewhere out west too in Colorado. Two of his wives, Powder Creek. Yes, and there. But there's others. I mean, there's so many of them. It's like you know what? I know. If you're <laughs> newly married or dating, well, probably just newly married, and because they'll have insurance on you. Don't go hiking, especially if you never went hiking before or you don't like hiking. And you don't like the guy. And, well, and there's or if you're things. having marriage trouble. Right. Well, first don't of all. Don't go hiking. First don't of all. Don't go. First of all, let's go to the first thing. I'm sure everybody who listens to this now is familiar with coercive control. And one of the, one of the sociopathic things is love bombing, where yes. they rush you into a relationship. And sometimes they're not as big a cad as Dennis Larson, but actually give you all sorts of gifts and take you to fancy places. And, and it's just so romantic and that, you know, that you don't have time to think about it. And now, obviously that's not really what happened with poor Kathy. I think he was savvy enough to see a very vulnerable person and took advantage of it. But don't, let the guy rush you. It's not love. You can't know somebody. I'm not saying that there aren't marriages that have lasted forever when the people got married after knowing each other for a few yeah, weeks. But don't. Uh, I mean, why? I don't you know? know. And then, too, if, yeah, if anything makes you feel uncomfortable, like, I know you'll laugh at me, Becky, but everybody should fucking read The Gift of Fear. Yes. That's all I'm I saying. Have, I'll read it. I promise you I'll well, read it. Well, a new edition is coming out in March. Oh, okay. Because I gave mine to a friend of mine here in Belgrade who's having some issues. She probably hasn't read it, but I gave it to her. So I was going to get a new issue, and I saw on Amazon that a new edition um, with some new stuff is coming out in March. So Ooh, I'm waiting until March. But I did see him on Oprah, though. Gavin DeBecker. Yes. But, I mean, it's such a sad story because actually Kathy when you think about it she had gotten that little bit of money from her grandmother she had her her, her own house she had her little house and, and everything she, and I wish I wish she had I just wish that people would you have to learn to enjoy being with yourself if you can enjoy yourself when you're alone then you can enjoy sharing it with somebody else but yes. you don't you can't rely on somebody else all the time or think yeah. that you have to be in a relationship right. all the time. I can and, understand and, if you want to, you know, you look down the road, you want to be married and have yes. children and all that stuff. But don't, don't. Especially just, she was 26. It just makes I know. me sad. I, me too. Would, and and I. And he I, sounded like he was such a dickhead dick. anyway. I know. So those I other know. two women were probably. I know. Good. I know. I don't fully understand the whole not wanting to be alone because I actually prefer it and always have. And I have to tell you, when I'm with myself, doing things I want to do as opposed to, like, doing work, working, I'm never, <laughs> I'm never bored. That's because you're so fascinating. I, I do fascinate you myself. fascinate yourself. You feel so bad when you read it. And also her depiction. And one sad thing, like, I did an image search for her on Google and found what I think could be a wedding picture of her, but Mm -hmm. there were, with none of the articles, not with one of them, was there a photo of her. I know. I looked to see. There was not one on newspapers.com. There was not one photo of Kathy. And it's not that there were a lot of Dennis, but there were more of him. And if you do like a Google search, like for Leslie, and it's L-E-S-L-E-E, Leslie Larson, there are a lot of her. Some of them are the same one, but... 
it's kind of sad that Kathy, like I looked for the standard article interview with the mom about what kind of person she was. And even if it had been just an accident and there was none of that, it's not like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember the eighties, we were big on that in the eighties. If somebody died, at least the newspapers I worked at. I know. It's, I can't tell you how many doors I had to knock on, you know, of parents whose child had a died. family picture. I In fact, know. that's how we would get the interview. It was always a very uncomfortable thing, but you'd knock on the door and say, you know, can we, because there was no email, can we have a photo to, mm-hmm. in, to put in the paper of your child? And to tell you the truth, nobody ever, tur- everybody wanted, always, people always wanted to talk, but it was very uncomfortable. But... It's a very sad story, and he was just so predatory about it. I know. I mean, that's how the whole... That's the thing that's that's really creepy and gross is he knew exactly. It's not like he decided, not that it's any better, but somebody that gets married and then decides they're not happy with the person. Which might have happened with Leslie. My -hmm. guess is she was pregnant when they got married. I mean, it's possible the baby was born early because they got married in June... 1974, July 1974, and the baby was born in January. Mm, So, but I think with her, it's something, and this is total speculation, obviously, that he thought about, he just didn't want to be married, you know. And And Janine somehow dodged a bullet. Maybe it's because once there were a couple kids... um, Maybe he really liked her or something, you know. But he he needed to make money. Right, he needed that hundred thousand dollars, so he, he wouldn't didn't have to want work. to kill her. So he had to go find somebody else to. And I'd love to know why it. he picked Maine. And I almost wonder if he part of it was he saw something about when two people had died at Acadia National Park just two years before, and you wonder if that made the news. And he was an outdoors guy; he was probably paying attention. No, that could be. And yeah. if that's when he started forming a, the plan, Ugh. because why Maine? I know. And frankly, too, you know, it's kind of unclear, but it sounds like he became familiar with Otter Cliff because he drove out there on the 4th of July. But maybe he, that was his intention, was to drive out there, you know? Well, I was thinking that maybe he was looking up cliffs in Maine and the encyclopedia or whatever, right. since it wasn't, there was no internet, but he, he and he wanted to see what it looked like. He yeah. could have easily opened up the main gazetteer. There has to be a reason he came to Maine. The mills, like at the time, those were really good jobs. So yeah, it's possible he heard, but you know, it's 2,500 miles away. Well, maybe he just thought, I don't know, farther away. So that's than- why my guess is a total guess that he had seen an article about Two yeah, people dying at Acadia and thought, okay. Well, yeah, since the, when his uh, other wife, there were a lot of articles about the creek. Right. Although I still, my personal feeling about that is uh, he killed her, but not necessarily in the way he said he did. Right. I think he could have killed her in any number of ways and then and just, just use said, that as an excuse. Right. Because it kind of sounds better, too, that, oh, I pushed her into the water as opposed to, yeah, I strangled her and, and right. hit her body, you know? Right, and when they yeah. confess, they always start out with, well, she pushed me, she yeah. hit me, she did this, she did that. Bullshit. You know. But anyway, so that is the Well, thank you, story that was good. But you do end up going down a rabbit hole reading yes, those do. old newspaper stories. But also, as I always say, you can find so much more information yes. in those old newspaper stories than you can by Googling. Definitely it, can. You know? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, so, but you have a recommendation. Yes, I do. <laughs> so my recommendation is a podcast this Ooh. time. And it's called Bed of Lies. It's by the Telegraph, which is the London Telegraph. I mean, what it is used it? used to, I think now they just call it the Telegraph. It's just because, the Telegraph. But it, it was the London, I think it was like and the Daily. The, ho- the host is Kara McGugan. It's got seven parts. I think seven, it might be eight, because there's part one and part two of the last one. But the episodes are very short. They're only about half an hour. It's kind of a spoiler, but not really, because you find out pretty quickly on... It's about a bunch of different women who get into these relationships. They're all activists, domestic activists, like not for anything. They're not like communists or or some kind of a, you know, anarchists or something like that. They're just like animal rights or they're against uh, electric right, camping social, built somewhere. Social yeah, stuff activists. like that. They demonstrate a lot. They don't do anything really bad. But all of them have met these guys. And this is over the years. They're not all at the same time. But she talks about a bunch of different couples and she tells the listener not to get too confused or not to worry if you mix up these couples because she's trying to tell you about a pattern, which is good that she tells you that at the beginning because there's a a five or six different couples starting from like the late 60s until like just recently within the last five years. They meet these guys, they, they get into relationships with these guys and then suddenly the guys disappear on them or break up with them or something and they, they don't hear from them again. And it turns out all these guys were undercover cops that were infiltrating these mm. these groups to try to get information. Oh, Not exactly wow. trying to stop. And it's very, very interesting because... Um, you find that out fairly quickly that they're not who they say they, you know, it's really good. Uh, and actually so, Hannah listened to most of it with me and she was mad at me because I finished listening to it without her. So, so, oh wow. So, so they're basically just exploiting women's, once yes. again, exploiting it's, women's it was desire very, for yes. a relationship. And to, we'll talk about that after, but let okay. me go through oh, the, yeah, go through the ratings. Negative Nellies. So bad reenactments, no. They don't have any reenactments, obviously. Right. Um, narrative cliches, no. No. Uh, racial gender stereotypes, no. As a matter of fact, I thought it was refreshing because it was mostly the beginning, Kara McGugan, the host, she's the reporter and the host. She's talking to all the women that this happened to. She does bring in men later, but it's all, it's women. And it's funny because no matter the age or anything, they're all very relatable and they're all very forthright about what they went through, even though none of it is their fault. I can still see how you could feel embarrassed or humiliated or feel like you're stupid right. that you got duped. They're very honest and it's it's very interesting. Lack of good visuals, even though it's there's no visuals, I'm going to use the audio thing. I'm going to take off a point. And I am usually not one because I am ne- I'm not one to throw stones. So I'm usually not one to complain about any technical things. But there's a couple times when the volume on the uh, interview was hard to hear. Like, especially the last one, she was interviewing some former cop on the phone with his accent. And with it was very, very staticky. I couldn't understand half See, of what was sa- he right, was saying. And- and I understand how that can happen, but 
they have to do like some podcasts to say, boy, that audio was bad. If you couldn't understand it, here's basically exactly. What and she didn't do that, so that's why I'm taking and, away a point. And there's a couple podcasts, and this is even more frustrating, where there's stuff you can air fine. Where they'll say, in case you didn't catch that, they just yeah. said blah blah, and then they'll have something really crappy. And they don't Ugh. say it. And it's like, so, oh my God. So missing pieces, I'm also taking away one point. Ooh. Because near the end, and I, I, even though this is spoilerish, they do talk about the wives. Because uh, all these guys were married. Uh, because that, and it, they were supposed cats. to be married. That was one of the... It was one of the requirements of the job that you had to be married and had a family. The police reasoning for this was that a guy that was had something to come back to wouldn't get sucked into the job. But these guys, it was long term uh. relationships with. It wasn't. You uh. have to. You have to listen to that. One of them made the guy go to couples counseling with her because she couldn't understand what their issues were. Oh my god! And, and so I assume they were all like having sex. And yes, stuff. no, these were long term. Yeah, what no. did they tell their wives that they were on the job? Their wives didn't know that they, this was happening. Ah, Jesus! For them, I'm pretty. I'm assuming, ah, but that's it's my also mis- it's also dirty and cynical. you have to listen to it. I will listen, and to it, it. it's very misogynistic. So, yeah. and maybe the wives didn't want to talk. Although the wives were suing, there's a lot of lawsuits now, and the wives <laughs> also are. And I don't blame them. They were victims, too. But we didn't hear enough about the wives and the families of these men, which maybe they wouldn't cooperate. I don't know. But I would have liked to know a little bit more about that. So I'm taking a point of inaccuracies, anachronisms, no. You know, it took place over different years. But, like, there was one woman that had lots of videotape and stuff, even though it was from, like, the 80s, because she was either a videographer or she was something that we, where she was always doing it anyway. So she had a lot of video and of the guy and stuff, which was interesting. Um, storytelling was excellent. Not only was the, you know, the story... She told the story well. She explains things well. Like I said, she tells you don't, not to worry if you're mixing people up. That's not the point. But also just the way they wove in the interviews and the, any of the footage they had from that one woman that took up the video. And she interviewed tons of people. Freshness. I mean, I had never heard of this at all. I can't believe it. And it makes me wonder if there's something I, I hope there are. Oh, there's are. all sorts of sleazy shit going repetition no there are some repetition things for clarity but i'll say no beating the drum maybe a tiny bit but uh, but i'm not taking anything off it could have been me being pissed about what was happening you know magnifying right. things more in my mind but so i gave it an eight and i highly recommend it oh, it's I'll very to quick listen. to listen to it's three four hours all together and i wish it would have been a little longer or had more you know like i said more right. but do they have it's like some of these things have a companion website yes, that has articles i have photos. to subscribe to the telegraph to see them and i didn't well you pay for good journalism they have a free subscription though for 30 yeah. days. Um, no, I was going to say, the thing that kills me, and after you listen to it, we can talk more, but they weren't infiltrating dangerous groups. They're not dangerous. And they weren't doing it to try to stop anything. They were doing it to find out stuff. And it was because they were worried about commerce, and they were worried about them disrupting businesses and stuff like oh, that. Oh, jeez. You know, Is that the it, police's job, even? 
I know. And it, it, the thing that makes me mad is the amount of money spent on this stupid crap. It, it and they're so, so misogynistic. It is. You have to listen to it. It'll yeah. make you mad. I will. I'll listen to it before the next, before we record Oh, yes, and so we can so discuss we can, it. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing we could do right now is both of us watched Baby God on HBO. Yeah, and that was yeah. a really quick one. And yeah. what did you think of it? Did you? And now I'm trying to remember because I, I didn't think we were going to talk about it. But Well, we don't have to do negative notes. No, no, no. I think I told you after I watched it, I would have had to take away points. Yes. Holes. There were missing pieces. Missing pieces up the That you could drive a truck through. And I felt some of them were the people who made it it being kind of delicate about going into things. And my feeling is if you're going to make... And it's about a doctor who used his own sperm to... (laughs) Inseminate many, many, many women. Many women. If you're going to do a documentary on that, you have to be all in and you can't worry about the delicacies of child sexual abuse and things that may sound like a non sequitur if you haven't watched it, but it does come up. I think that there were psychological things about him that should have been explored that weren't. Yes. I had many questions. I thought it was okay. It was interesting, but it left many more questions. And also, I felt it was too... Not that the like the children born of his sperm aren't important, and I'm glad they were in it and stuff, but I think it went on too much about them and their feelings about it and stuff, and I wanted yes. more of what happened. And exactly. also, what is with the fucking camera on the knickknacks? See, I, I knew you wouldn't like that part. About the fucking... <laughs> Knickknacks. I know. Nobody I must have drunk funny. tea because there was no whistling tea kettles. But <laughs> I, I would think every a- time I see something like that, no. yeah, I th- I agree with you. I thought that they could have delved more into it for it's something a- that's only an hour and a half long. There's a lot of wasted yes. time. There's a lot yes. of slow rolling, and I- and and also even with the people talking about their trauma, like I want to know more uh, less about them going on and on and on and on with these long endless conversations about their feelings and stuff and more about who they are i would have liked to see more of his first of all i wish and they probably didn't want to be involved the only one of his children that lived with him his biological children was the son that we know um, were his by because I think those no that, that, one that of my, he grew up that was in a family with him he had five kids with his with his right, wife right and they talked to that one son but that right. was the only one oh I see what you're and saying and then his I two adopted daughters right and they only talked to that one adopted daughter right. I would have liked to see more of them, what their family life was like, because well, it was obviously a well, that was one disgusting big piece of crap. That was one big hole, like the adopted daughters. Well, he delivered us and took us home. It's like, okay, that's not really how you adopt someone. I know. So I wondered if they were his biological I daughters. I did, too. And if he had made someone pregnant. I with, did, too. That was one of the major holes. So, yeah. So, anyways... The story itself is interesting. I didn't yes. think they did a very good job. Of, although I would like to see someone do a really in-depth story about yes. him. Although he, it's, it was making me sick to my stomach, so yes. maybe not. So, yeah, okay. but I recommend it. If Next time is me. I have no idea what I'm doing. Good, good, okay. All right. I can't wait. Well, okay. since it's Sunday okay. night and we have to... Yeah, I have to work tomorrow. Okay. So, thanks Thank for listening. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. I can hear the football game. Oh, let me uh, close my door. Just oh, a your second. door was oh, Jesus. Well, it was closed until a cat opened it. Just a second.
I can still hear it. Okay. Um, now I can't. Okay. Like. Okay. Let's get going. Since they have it at 150 okay. decibels. I know. Okay. Let's let's get going. Okay. Oh, just a minute. Oh, you're gonna have to cut that out. Okay. Yeah, so, I d- believe oh. me when I edit, I cut out all sorts of things. Oh, so a loud yawn, me, I would definitely perfect. 